Hi, this is Dr. Brett Hill, co-host of The Wellness Guys Show and That Paleo Show. And if you want to make real, sustainable lifestyle changes, then you need to get yourself a copy of my book, How to Eat an Elephant. Go to www.howtoeatanelephant.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damien Kristoff, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to The Wellness Guys. I'm Dr. Lawrence Tam. I'm Dr. Damien Kristoff. And I'm Dr. Brett Hill. And this is The Wellness Guys Show, a weekly show dedicated to bringing wellness into your lives. And today, we have a very special guest uh, today on the call. Uh, we, he's woken up really early, nice and early for us to be on this call. Um, Brett, would you like to introduce our special guest today? Because I think the fans are going to be pretty excited that we're going to have another New York Times bestseller on the call today. I know, we've had a few of them now, haven't we? How good is it? And, uh, and this week is Dr. William Davis, and, and he's written just a fantastic book called Wheat Belly, um, which I actually read uh, within the last year and just found to be absolutely amazing, just full of great information, which I'm really excited about. And, uh, and I know a number of people within my practice who've read it and been really inspired by it and made massive change by it. Um, so uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. William Davis. And, and to start with Dr. Davis, perhaps you can start by just telling us a bit about your background, uh, you know, your, your career and how you came to be writing this book. Oh, sure. Well, well thank you for having me. Uh, I started out in my career doing the conventional stuff in cardiology, that is uh, angioplasty and stents and atherectomy and laser angioplasty, all that stuff that I thought when I was younger was exciting and, and invigorating and you got to do, work in the cath lab all day long. Well, it took me a few years of doing that to realize this was kind of stupid. That is, it was a revolving door of doing procedure after procedure. Someone comes in for their three stents. They're back six months later for more. They're back another year later for even more or bypass or they have a heart attack. In other words, we were really just uh, putting out fires. We weren't, weren't addressing the disease. So I wanted to address the disease itself. I, I stopped doing procedures and I started asking, well, what can we do to uh, make people safer, put a stop to this disease. Well, one thing you learn very quickly, uh, I'm, and I'm sure you guys have seen similar things, is you cannot be diabetic or pre-diabetic and have full control over health, including heart health. So I wanted a better way to get rid of or at least minimize the impact of diabetes and pre-diabetes, at least uh, for heart health. So I, I used a very simple observation and that is that the glycemic index, that is how high blood sugar goes after various foods, is among the highest for whole grains, whole wheat, uh, and other wheat products. So I asked people to remove all the wheat from their diet. And they did. They thought it was kind of odd, but they did. They'd come back three, four, six months later, and their blood sugar would indeed be much lower. In fact, many diabetics became non-diabetic. Pre-diabetics became non-pre-diabetic. But all kinds of other things happened. They lost 20, 30, 40 pounds. They lost two, three, or four inches off their waist. Funny rashes disappeared. Joint pain disappeared. Acid reflux disappeared. The bowel urgency of irritable bowels disappeared. People with inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, uh, experienced dramatic relief or complete cure. Asthma improved. Migraine headaches improved. PMS improved. In other words, I, when I switched starting, <laughs> goodness Christ, of transformations in health. It's the most profound thing uh, it, that that I've ever heard. I mean, look, we I, we I, 
we've been speaking about this in Australia and New Zealand probably for the last almost decade now. For the last 10 years, I suppose, gluten and wheat has been at the forefront of um, exclusion in order to improve people's health, which is pretty ex- exciting. Uh, and, and then what's recently come to pass is this uh, discussion about fructan. In your, I suppose, in your sort of um, journey, what have you found, Dr. Davis? Has it been the gluten or is it the fructan or is it just the wheat? I think it's the wheat. That is, I, I think we should get away from talking about gluten, in fact, because if we talk about gluten, it leads to all this conversation about being gluten-free and then leads many people down that path of gluten-free foods. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah. So I, what, I, what I try to uh, um, uh, talk about is it's about wheat. It's about what agribusiness did to this plant. That is, they turned a four, four-and-a-half-foot-tall plant into an 18-inch-tall, two-foot-tall high-yield dwarf plant, mm. semi-dwarf plant. Yeah. And it's very different. So, yes, it has gluten in it, and those glutens are different now. The, the structures, the sequences of the modern glutens are different. Also, the gliadin is different. That is this thing that has an opiate effect on the human brain and stimulates appetite and causes an addictive relationship with wheat. There's also changes in wheat germagglutinin, another protein unrelated to gluten that is a direct intestinal toxin. If we consume a lot of wheat, we get overexposed to something called amylopectin A. That's the thing that raises blood sugar sky high. We get overexposed to something called alpha amylase inhibitors. This is probably the reason why kids are showing so many allergies to wheat showing up as asthma and funny rashes. So in other words, yeah, it's about gluten, but it's about all the various components of modern wheat that have been changed at the hands of geneticists in the interests of increasing yield. Profound. And, uh, and Dr. Davis, you raised an interesting point there because you're talking about modern wheat and making a distinction there. And, and look, I, I tend to follow the paleo diet and, and I've obviously read a lot of stuff about that. And, and obviously their suggestion is that, that wheat full stop just isn't something we evolved to eat and, and not something that's natural for us to consume. But you seem to be suggesting it's more so modern wheat than wheat as a whole. Can you sort of go into that a bit deeper? Yeah. So uh, paleo people are my friends because they, they understand this the best. So they know that modern wheat is the worst. But yeah. all wheat, all wheat, as we point out from a Paleolithic viewpoint, has been a problem. So when we first adopted, for instance, einkorn or emmer wheat, that's the ancient forms of wheat, uh, 10,000 years ago, there, was, there were all kinds of problems. There was an explosion in tooth decay, tooth abscess, tooth loss, crooked teeth a reduction in mandibular size and maxillary size, maxillary bone size. We lost height as much as seven inches in males, five inches in females. We lost bone diameter. We showed evidence for uh, iron deficiency, something called parotid hyperostosis seen in the fossil record in skulls. Uh, And for the first time in primate history, when we incorporated even wild grains, our brain size fell by 250 cc's. We are not the largest brain uh, 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 example of homo species that have walked the earth, Cro-Magnon and Neanderthals were. They had 1,600 cc brains compared to our 1,350 cc brains. So absolutely right. Wheat and grains have always been a problem for humans. They always represented a compromise. I call wheat the food of the ignorant or desperate. So we eat them only when we had to, and if we don't have to, we shouldn't. And we should least of all, eat the stuff that agribusiness has changed on us. 
Dr. Davis, so just an interesting thing. A lot of people, you know, you tell them not to eat wheat and um, they just don't want to give it up. Now, my question to you is that do you find that there is varying degrees of um, the reaction from different people to wheat? Like is there, you know, high, some people are really, really highly allergic to them, just should not touch it. And there's certain people who can actually tolerate them. Is there, have you found that in the, in the people that you have dealt with? What I've found is there's varying degrees of perceived symptoms. That mm. is, some people have, as you know, flagrant, awful symptoms. They have joint destruction. They have gangrene. They have diabetes. They have overwhelming addictive relationship with wheat. They can't go more than a few hours without it. If they stop it, they have anxiety, panic, uh, shaking. So they have terrible addictions to wheat. Then there's the other extreme. People say, I don't know what you're talking about. I have none of those effects. I feel just fine. Mm. But one thing, and by the way, about 70% of people have perceived symptoms, about 20 to 30% don't. Mm. So the majority do have, they might not know it, by the way. In other words, they say, I didn't realize that mm. my bowel urgency and the funny rash I had in my backside was, was from wheat. I stopped it, and then I had a, an exposure inadvertently. It came right back. So a lot of people aren't even aware that they're having problems with wheat. But there are those people you're talking about that have no perceived symptoms, but 100% of people have distortions of metabolic markers. So for instance, nobody, nobody escapes the increased bowel permeability caused by that gliadin protein. That's the first step in generating autoimmune disease. Mm. So they know they're having a problem until they fun, uh, develop funny joint swelling. That's lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, or they develop uh, being really cold because they had an episode of Hashimoto's thyroiditis, didn't know it. So there's 75 autoimmune conditions, many of which the first domino to start that process is the consumption of wheat, whether or not you're aware of it. Wow. This is unbelievable. This is pretty exciting and, and scary for many people, I think, that are listening to this here, Dr. Davis, which is, which is good. You know, this, this podcast is all about the wake-up calls and uh, taking people on a new journey. One of the things you mentioned before was um, of, about grains. You said that uh, all grains – or maybe you didn't say that it was all grains, but it kind of came across that it was all grains. Do you, do you believe that it's all grains um, that, that, that can cause this problem? We're just really talking here about wheat. All grains are a problem. Wheat is the worst. It's the top of the heap. It's the, the most awful of the whole category. But all grains are a problem. So this was, this was true. Uh, since I'm talking to guys who are familiar with the Paleolithic record, so then you know that uh, when humans added einkorn and emmer wheat, we had all those problems, tooth decay, tooth loss, loss in stature, shrinkage of brain size, etc. But it was also true. It was also true for the incorporation of maize and teosinte. In the Americas, it was also true for the incorporation of sorghum and millet in sub-Saharan Africa. So in other words, whenever humans incorporated grain, we paid a, a significant health price. So all grains are, are a problem to one degree or another. And grains are a recent uh, addition to the human diet. And we have not had sufficient time to fully adapt to it. Now, maybe if we give it another 100,000 years, maybe we will. But right now, humans are poorly adapted to eating grains. But... Grains vary in their potential for harm to us. The most benign, for instance, is rice. So when uh, uh, early Asians incorporated rice from the swamps of Asia, they did not, by the way, experience all those problems that other cultures experienced when they incorporated ancient grains. So all grains are problems. The worst is wheat, and it's been made much, much worse because of the 40 years of shenanigans by genetics researchers who changed it on us and made something not so good for us 
into something that is absolutely awful for us. And so, um, look, I think one of the things you mentioned before was weight loss, Dr. Davis. And uh, I know there's a lot of listeners listening in who are thinking, hey, that sounds pretty good. And so um, <laughs> it seemed like you were suggesting that they were losing that weight purely from shredding the wheat. So, so perhaps you can go into that. And how consistent is that? How quickly do they tend to lose the weight? You know, what's your experience been with that? Sure. So I, I always stress that this is not a weight loss program, but you can use it to lose a lot of weight. And it works because not because you're reducing calories. You do reduce calories, by the way, but because you reduce the appetite stimulation of the gliadin protein. So gliadin is broken down to, an o- to opiates that stimulate appetite. And the average wheat consumer consumes on average about 400 more calories per day every day. You remove that appetite stimulation. People say, you know what's funny? I had breakfast at 7 in the morning, and it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I forgot to eat lunch. People lose hunger. In fact, we see the opposite. People say, you know, I'm no longer hungry. So there's a very natural control over appetite and behavior and calorie intake. And and weight loss, for most people, tends to be effortless. The the rapidity of weight loss varies, of course. If you're a 293-pound 55-year-old guy, you're going to lose weight at a different clip than, say, a 22-year-old premenopausal marathon running girl, right? But uh, a typical weight loss would be about 10 pounds in the first two weeks. It's very typical. Not all that's fat. A lot of it's, I believe, just water, edema, because of the incredible water-retaining properties of wheat, and people do lose a lot of water. But 10 pounds first two weeks is very typical. About 15, 20 pounds first month is very, very common, though there is great variation. We've had now many, many, I've lost count how many people have lost 40, 50, 90 pounds over the course of a year. I've even seen many people with 120, 150 pounds lost over the course of a year, over a longer period. So it's quite striking. Wow, it's fantastic. It's just amazing. It just, it just boggles my mind. What about I, one of the things that we talked about recently is about childhood obesity and the, and the problems with kids nowadays. Um, what is the... Like, what do parents listening to the show need to know about how wheat is actually affecting their kids? I mean, obviously, a typical uh, lunch is a sandwich. You know, a typical dinner for, you know, a North American or West, a Western diet is, you know, pasta. You know, what are some of the things that are actually going on physiologically and biologically in the child uh, when they're actually ingesting wheat? A great point. So, uh, because parents will listen when it comes to issues about their kids. Mm. So wheat, this gliadin protein in wheat, the same thing that's degraded to an opiate in the body, has different effects on different people. Uh, so it can cause appetite stimulation in a lot of people. In others, it can cause paranoia, anxiety. In others, uh, it causes mind fog, cloudiness. In kids, it impairs learning and causes behavioral outbursts. We see it to an exaggerated degree in kids with ADHD and autistic spectrum disorder. Those kids who consume wheat have awful behavioral outbursts and can't learn, can't sit down, can't pay attention. But uh, it happens to a lesser degree, but still significant, in kids without autism or uh, ADHD. So there's impaired learning, impaired performance for kids. Now, conversely, if you take it out of the diet, kids perform much better. People, parents will say, you know, I, I thought I had a problem child. I didn't. I had a child who was normal who was consuming wheat because when he got rid of all the wheat, his behavior, he, he would sit, he would study, he would, he would listen. He would, it, I had a perfectly normal kid. I didn't know it all these years because I fed him whole grains. So people don't realize the magnitude, the severity of the effect 
till they remove it. And that's probably the gliadin protein. But they also, just like we do, they see all the health transformations. They see kids lose their acne, their dandruff, their funny joint pains, their funny behavior, all kinds of things recede in kids as they do in adults. And parents often say, was it safe? Is it safe to have my child? We, of course, it's safe. So those of us who study the Paleolithic record know that humans have no business eating wheat anyway. And reverting back to the diet that we are evolutionarily adapted to, of course, is safe. So there is no danger, except the danger of being re-exposed when little Johnny goes to a birthday party or a sleepover and they shove pizza on the poor kid and he's got diarrhea behaviors and attention and, and dandruff as a result. But putting that aside, the inadvertent ex re-exposures, kids do far better. Of course, ironically, in the U.S. and I think in Australia also, kids and parents are told, eat more healthy whole grains. They're, in fact, that's part of their program from the government to increase consumption of grains. So we've got to fight. Without, I mean, a lot of the parents that uh, we deal with um, as chiropractors, and a lot of times, especially with kids with ADHD and and problem um, with you know problems like that with behavior, one of the things we talk about with allergies is that you know you got to get rid of the wheat. Now, a lot of parents have said, "No, I've done that. I've tried that." And um, what is your recommendation to really for a parent? Like we're talking from you know when as an advice as a doctor giving a, a advice to a parent, they need to know almost something like how long should I how long should I kind of give this a go before actually we'll see the results? I know it varies, but what would you recommend for the parent? Uh, you should start seeing changes within a week and most changes develop within a month. So if, if, if your child is having say stomach, an upset stomach a lot, that should recede within three to five days. Behavioral issues recede rather quickly three to five days, so in all practicality, within a week or so. So most of the perceived changes can occur, in children, that is, in within a week or so. In adults, things take longer, particularly if they involve autoimmunity or inflammation. Those kinds of problems can take longer. So if you want to see if your rheumatoid arthritis, for instance, or your multiple sclerosis will respond, you've got to give it months, like six months, because those kinds of conditions take much longer. But the kids are much more uh, adaptive, will respond much more quickly. So parents should know pretty quickly. The, the best uh, advice I have for parents is as, as your child ages, gets older, 7, 8, 9, 12, 13, education is paramount. Because mm -hmm. if you force this on, uh, on your child, but he goes off to a birthday party, a sleepover, school functions, there's going to be wheat every darn single time, right? Because it's part of the culture. It's, it's deeply ingrained into the culture. Uh, so the, the, the protection is education. It's to educate your child why you do this and how you avoid it. If you don't tell them, they're not going to know. And they can get, by the way, quite ill on re-exposure. That's a phenomenon we see a lot of. Those of us who are wheat-free, who have an inadvertent or intentional exposure, can get quite ill when we when we are re-exposed, so it is very important to educate your child. Your child. Do you think? Uh, do, um, do, do you think that we're, what we're talking about here is with re-exposure that it's far worse than I suppose just eating it in the first place, or is it more insidious that when you're eating it, um, you don't really know what's going on, and then when you take it out and then you and you get it out of your system, then you bring it back in, you get all these symptoms. Is that what we're talking about there? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a phenomenon that's very striking. It's very reproducible. You can do it on and off and on and off. I wouldn't recommend it, but you can. <laughs> no, but it's, not, yeah, absolutely. it's not been studied at all. 
So I can only speculate what that what it's due to. I think it's due to the wheat germagglutinin, that is this thing that is indigestible and is very destructive to the human gastrointestinal tract. If I feed, for instance, one milligram of this protein from wheat, wheat germagglutinin, to a rat, it destroys its intestinal tract. So uh, if we consume an average Australian's or American's wheat intake, which is 10 to 20 milligrams of wheat germaglutinin, it is very destructive to the human gastrointestinal tract. So I think that's part of it. But some people experience things like uh, asthma or joint pain. So it's got to be more than wheat germaglutinin. I suspect it's also that gliadin, the increased uh, uh, bowel permeability from gliadin. So the, but those are my speculations. But the, uh, the so-called wheat re-exposure syndrome is a very real phenomenon. And people experience it. Uh, they go to a restaurant and they didn't know there was some wheat in that sauce. And next, you know, you're running to the toilet with joint pains and diarrhea and so on. And so, Dr. Davis, you mentioned before about the effects that wheat has on the brain and those opioid receptors. So perhaps you can talk to us a little bit about wheat addiction and how that actually affects the body, because I think that's a big one for people who are looking to cut this out. Okay, sure. So there are five small polypeptides, small proteins that have so far been identified. And by the way, that research got its start in the 1970s at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, because these researchers wanted to understand why several psychiatric groups had made this observation. If you take people with schizophrenia and take the wheat out of their diet for four weeks, they experience marked improvement, not cure, but improvement of a phenomenon of schizophrenia, such as paranoia and hearing voices to kill your neighbor. If you add wheat back, they got much worse. If they took wheat away, they got better. You add wheat back, it got... So they, the people at the NIH asked, what the heck is in wheat? So they started this research and boiled it down to the uh, digestive byproducts of the gliadin protein in wheat. So five polypeptides. Uh, these are all four or five amino acids long. And uh, they're small enough to penetrate the so-called blood-brain barrier. And as you say, they bind to the opioid receptors of the human brain, but in a different way, say, than heroin or morphine, because it doesn't cause euphoria. It doesn't cause uh, pain relief from knee pain, right? It just causes addictive behavior. We know that all opiates cause an increase in appetite. That's fact. That's been established for over a century in animals and in humans. So the gliadin digestive opiates of wheat don't have all the effects of opiate opiates or opioids. They only cause appetite stimulation and an addictive relationship. If that's true, there must be a withdrawal syndrome from wheat. And there is. 35 to 40% of people who stop eating wheat go through about a three to five day long period of nausea, anxiety, headache, fatigue, depression. It can be quite awful for some people. So not everybody gets it, but people who get it, it can be quite significant. I know of no way to blunt it, except maybe to baby yourself through those three to five days. Don't put yourself in stressful situations, hydrate well, uh, et cetera. But it goes away. And when most people report after, after they're through their withdrawal process, they feel wonderful. Dr. Davis, I got a question for you. I mean, obviously, some people may not be. You know, a lot of people will get a lot from this, you know, when they, especially when you're losing weight. But you said one of the things that it's not about losing weight. What if someone who's not overweight, you know, they exercise regularly, you know, I feel great, for example, just, you know, that's their, their, their mentality and say, well, how is whole wheat bread bad for me? You know, can you get into the fact of, you know, the LDL formations and things like that? 
Sure. So that's how this all got started for me was blood sugar and small LDL. So if we want control over heart disease risk, we've got to go after the number one most common cause of heart disease in Australia, in the U.S., in the world, which is an excess of small LDL particles. We live in an age where we're told it's high LDL cholesterol, which is nonsense. That's, that's ridiculous. That's an absurd notion. That's a remnant of 1963 thinking uh, because of this notion of that cholesterol causes heart disease. Cholesterol has nothing to do with heart disease. Cholesterol is a convenience of measurement, period. We have to look at the particles. There are many causes of of coronary atherosclerosis, but among the most common is an excess of small LDL particles. There's only one way to get small LDL particles, and that is consumption of carbohydrates, period. Now, it can vary because there are gene varying genetic susceptibilities to expressing the small LDL particle, but small LDL particles only come from exposure to carb consumption, consumption of carbohydrates, and the most common dominant carbohydrate that has the blessing of our government agencies Wheat, of course, whole wheat. And so the amylopectin A of wheat is an extravagant provoker of small LDL particles. So I, I saw this happen. People would come in with heart disease, and they would start, say, with 1,800 nanomoles per liter of small LDL particles. They go wheat-free. They lose their 33 pounds. They feel great, whatever. And we repeat that test, and they have zero small LDL parts or 180 or some, in other words, a profound drop. We're not talking about a drop of 5%, 10%, 20%. We're talking about uh, transformations in health that allowed people to have far greater control over their uh, heart disease future. So that's a big effect. But you, by, by the way, that's an effect you won't be aware of. This is massive. This is massive, Dr. Davis. And look, I've got a mate. He's, he's a great mate and uh, he's a cardiologist. He still, um, you know, does the stents and he does all the, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, and certainly not going in the, the cardiovascular reversal, um, uh, I suppose, direction. Um, when we're reversing cardiovascular disease, which I believe, you know, can happen, I've, I've spoken about this a number of times and heard many lectures on this through my naturopathic circles. What are the other things you've got to do? Obviously, quite clearly now we can hear you've got to take out wheat. Is fish oil involved? Do we need coenzyme Q10? Are there other types of amino acids that we should be taking in our diet? What are the things that we need to be doing there? Oh, yeah. So I hope your friend catches on. So, but Me too. You're exactly right. You can. Not always, not 100%, but better than 90% of the time. You can stop or reverse coronary atherosclerosis. And it has little to do with drugs, by the way. That's why this does not get a lot of press because there's not a lot of money in it. <laughs> but it requires a diet. So that's the diet to impair the expression of small LDL. Vitamin D normalization. So I live in, the, uh, in Wisconsin in the U.S., in which is, it's cold. It's 10 degrees outside today. So no one's laying outside naked to get their sun. <laughs> uh, nor are we eating uh, lots of marine animals and the organs of animals to get our vitamin D. So we have to take vitamin D. Omega-3 fatty acids, very important. So we, we should have been eating marine animals and oddly the brains of, of the animals we capture, which are very rich in omega-3 fatty acids, but people don't want to do that, so we take omega-3 fatty acids from fish oil. And it must be from fish oil, by the way, not from flax or chia. That's linolenic acid, something different. We have to normalize thyroid function. Uh, right now, I'm seeing an explosion in goiters, just like yeah. the early 20th century, because people are being told to cut their salt and they were relying on their salt to get the iodine. Iodine's in the ocean. It's not in our crops and livestock if it's raised in the Midwest or interior in your continent. 
And so we have iodine deficiency coming back. We can see it as hypothyroidism, or we can see it as goiters. And I'm seeing kids. Uh, okay, I don't see that many kids, but I'll see like uh, athletes and kids in their teens, and they're showing up with goiters because their parents aren't aware that iodine is essential. So iodine slash thyroid normalization is very important for control over heart health. And that's it. Oh, I should mention one other thing, an identification of hidden genetic patterns. That's the tricky part. You yeah. got to look hidden genetic patterns. By far and away, the most common genetic patterns are one, a tendency to overexpress the small LDL particle on exposure to grains and, and other carbohydrates, and two, lipoprotein A. Yeah. I call protein A the most aggressive known cause for heart disease no one gives a damn about. <laughs> <laughs> what are the MTHFR gene? That, that gene, is that uh, implicated? Which gene? The, the MTHFR gene. You know, that, that is one I've watched over the years. I, I just don't know. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, it's, so I don't know if we should... I, I used to correct homocysteines until the data became clear that there was no benefit, but I suspect you're right, that that subset of people with high homocysteines may be the people who do indeed obtain benefit. But here's the problem with homocysteine specifically. Homocysteine, is, it's becoming clearer and clearer after decades of debate, is a grab bag. It's a mixed bag of effects. Part of it's due to B6, B12, folic acid deficiency. Some of it's due to hypothyroidism. A lot of it's due to wheat consumption. So it's a mixed bag of things. I think after all the dust is settled, settled that you're, if you raised, that is, could it be this variant that is the one that's truly uh, benefited by a supplement B vitamins uh, in some form, methylated or otherwise? Uh, they might be the people who stand out. But I don't, I, I don't have my thinking clear on that one. Sure. And uh, just just one last quick one, Dr. Davis, because we're almost out of time here, but you sort of mentioned there about what we should be eating and the foods and omega-3s. Um, so obviously, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, that what we're feeding our animals is going to play an important part of that as well. I mean, we've spoken before about grass-fed versus grain-fed. Would you like to make a quick comment on that? Yeah, I think, you see what we're doing here? We're reverting back to primitive lifestyles. So most of us refuse to run naked in the tropical sun, right? So we've got to take our vitamin D. Most of us don't like the idea of eating marine animals every day, several times a day, or eating the brains of, of, uh, of animals we catch, and so we take fish oil. In other words, what we're really doing here is we're, we're mimicking, you might call it paleolithic behavior, or the, the style of living that humans are adapted to. That's what we're really doing here. So uh, I, that, that's, that's kind of my litmus test for whether something makes sense in health or not. Is this appropriate evolutionarily? Is this appropriate for the way we were designed to live? And so all the things we're, ta we're talking about are really ways of recreating uh, this primitive lifestyle. So much for your time and an incredible um, 30 minutes. It's been enlightening. And uh, I think everybody should definitely go out and guess, you know, get this book. Um, obviously, it's number one on Amazon for a reason, right? And uh, so make sure you go get Wheat Belly. I believe you also have a couple of different books there, Dr. Davis. You got Wheat Belly. You also got the Wheat Belly Cookbook as well uh, to supplement that. So make sure you guys go and get that uh, either on Amazon or your local bookstore. And so make sure you check out uh, his his blog. It's, uh, it's amazing, wheatbellyblog.com. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Davis. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. 
So as always, guys, you can now listen on The Wellness Guy Show on thewellnesscouch.com. I'd love to hear your feedback on this and carry us the conversation on Facebook. That's where we can actually have this conversation to tell us, you know, have you ever given up wheat before? Um, have you tried? And so what were some of the outcomes of that? And make sure you obviously subscribe to iTunes and I'd love to hear your comments and make sure you give us the ratings on iTunes as well. So until next week, begin creating wellness into your lives, lead by example, and let's change the world's health together. Join us next week on The Wellness Guy Show. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.